Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Also, uh, look to the person on your left and say, I'm sorry you got a less hour of sleep last night. And then look to the person on your right and say, but I'm really excited about party month. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, and then let's bring him back, yes. <laughs> I was a teacher. I never knew how to get the class re-engaged again. Once you like, got him excited and up and going, I couldn't just be like, yeah, oh, there we go, yeah, there we go. Or do the clap thing. Yeah, I love it. Okay. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Hope Brooklyn. My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, uh, just to re-extend another welcome. We're a community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. If you're joining with us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling A Subversive Church. We've been examining Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, in which he's trying to shape this new community of Jesus followers uh, into like, like, a, like a potter with the, with the clay, trying to shape them into the image of Jesus. But he's finding that, as we've been learning, extremely difficult. Why? Because the figure of Jesus is an extremely difficult figure. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Yes. Um, and what's happening is that the Corinthians, in their attempt to learn who Jesus is, they're kind of hybridizing Jesus. They're creating a hybrid of, of the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus that Paul presented to them, but also someone who looks a lot like their own Corinthian environment, their own Corinthian culture. Um, so he's kind of like, they're making Jesus in their own image, in their Corinthian image, which we say, why, why would they do that? We do that all the time. You and I, every day, we wake up and we make Jesus in our own image. I love this quote from Anne Lamott. Uh, she goes, you can safely assume you've made God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. <laughs> right? Yeah, we laugh, but we're like, oof. That, you mean that group over there? Like them? God's with them? God, God desires them as much as he desires me? Little old me who's working hard to, to please him? Yeah. <laughs> like that person over there, after all they did to me, God actually doesn't take my side over theirs? Nope, fortunately not. So that's what's going on in Corinth. This Corinthian group of about 30 to 50 new Jesus followers, they are essentially, um, they're creating a hybrid Jesus and they don't even know it. And Paul is attempting in his letter to sort of shed light on that, to subvert them. That's why we use a subversive church. He's trying to subvert their assumptions and their expectations of who this Jesus is. But because they're doing this, because they're creating a hybrid, it's producing all sorts of destructive results, as we've talked about. There are divisions in the community. There are factions that are being lifted up. There's competitive obsession over who possesses spiritual mysteries or who possesses the most spiritual mysteries. There's boasting and human leaders. And then today, what we have is the, uh, the culmination of the letter's opening argument. So, I know you're like, wait, this, now's the culmination? Well, for the first four chapters, Paul's been tracing one singular thought. And today, we get the conclusion of that initial thought. 
So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them, your phones, or we have it up here on the screen. We're going to go through 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. This is what he writes. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. But I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. Oh, how I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love. He's faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, as we turn our, our hearts toward this passage, um, we confess that we're challenged by it, kind of put off by it. Um, will you reveal to us What's true in here? Will you reveal to us who you are? Reveal to us your love? Um, that we may be formed more into your likeness because we've tasted you. We've tasted your good news and it's better than anything else. And so we trust you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So it's pointed out by a lot of scholars that not many pastors preach on this passage. And as we're reading it, it's pretty easy to see why, is it not? Uh, one, one scholar, Richard Hayes, he, he puts it this way. He goes, in the passage, the apostle 
addresses the congregation in a sarcastic, scolding tone, portrays the authentic Christian life as one of deprivation and suffering, employs patriarchal rhetoric to assert his own authority, immodestly calls his readers to imitate him, and threatens those who refuse with violent punishment. <laughs> just, uh, just for kicks and giggles. You know, maybe the Corinthians were right. If you were here last week, Anna put up a picture of Al Capone. It's like, it seems like there's a little mob boss going on. And she was like, no, no, no. Well, if Richard Hayes is, you know, I mean, joking or right, maybe there is more mob boss than Jesus going on in Paul. Obviously, he doesn't believe that, and nor do I, and I'll explain why. But what's going on in this passage is Paul is bringing his metaphors. He's been working on a 30,000-foot level, and he's bringing his metaphors down, and he's bringing them into direct confrontation with his Corinthian listeners and readers. And you and I, we don't like confrontation very much. It's not your fault. We live in a, a day and age and in a society which has worked really hard and done an amazing job at pretty much eliminating many forms of conflict or confrontation or just discomfort and pain, right? Isn't that what our technologies, the advancement of technology is after? the elimination of discomfort. Uh, so at first we had to go see movies. Then we could just rent movies at the local grocery store. And now we stream movies. We don't have to get off our couch. Whereas first we had to farm. Uh, then there are grocery stores. We just buy our food. We don't know where they come from. And now we have food delivery services. Whereas first there was long distance relationships where with pen and paper, anyone ever had to write letters, pen and paper? Yes, old school, where you write letters, pen and paper to your love. You don't even get to see their face. And then it became phone calls, and now it's texting and uh, FaceTime and short airplane rides. I'm pretty sure that all of our technologies are aimed at eliminating discomfort except for one, the MTA, right? <laughs> like, they're like the thorn in our side. They're just like, no, 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 you're, you're not in a dream. You're still alive. You're still alive. They haven't gotten the memo that they're supposed to make our lives less inconvenient. <laughs> so as we read this, we read this. Part of the confrontation seems really harsh to us. But I want to say with all the love in my heart, perhaps you and I, and mainly me, not you, have soft skin. And maybe there's something beneath the surface. If we can get past that initial shock of Paul's tone or Paul's seeming confrontation, maybe there's something there that he's getting at that's really true. So he begins, he begins this passage saying, think of us, meaning the apostles, think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mystery. There's a, there's a term called normative gaze. It was coined by Dr. Cornell West, and he was using it to describe the racialized vision in America. But I think if I understand his argument correctly, it could be more expansive than that. It could be broader. A normative gaze is an ideal figure or an ideal type that a collective body is revolving around. A collective body is revolving around, gazing at, looking at, and aspiring to be. There's this figure, there's this type in the middle of a, of a social, political, economic um, polity and we're looking at and we're saying, this right here, this is the good life. And maybe it's not even possible. Maybe no one has reached it, but this is the good life. This is, this is the, the sunum bonum, right? The highest good 
This is the standard of beauty, the standard of, of everything we value. This ideal figure represents the good life. Um, if you were an NBA fan in the 90s, that was Michael Jordan, right? Do you all remember that jingle? I was going back and watching YouTube, the, his jingle for Gatorade commercials. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Y'all remember that? Yes. I was actually having an argument, well, not an argument, it was a, conf- uh, a conversation with someone about LeBron versus Michael. Um, and I love LeBron, but when I was watching highlights, man, there's Michael Jordan is the sunum bonum of basketball. He just is. Um, he is the normative gaze that basketball players are looking at and saying, this is the highest good right here. This is what it means to be the basketball player. And chapter one through four has been Paul examining the Corinthians' normative gaze, the Corinthians' ideal figure, and saying, hey, this ideal figure of your Savior, he might not look like the Jesus I presented to you. He might look a little more Corinthian than you think. And if you're sort of getting at, well, what does that mean? If, if Paul's saying that the figure that you're aspiring toward, the figure that you're deriving, like your sense of, of motivation and life from is not quite Jesus. Who was it? Uh, probably, I mean, you could call it this guy, Seneca, right? Seneca, which I know you're looking at him, you're like, whoa, that is the highest good of what is beautiful. It was later on in life. You should have seen him in his prime, all right? But this is Seneca. Seneca was a stoic philosopher. Uh, Seneca was an incredibly intelligent man. He was extremely wise according to the Greek standards of wisdom, which we've talked about. Very well read. Uh, He was a controller of his passions, which was um, the Stoics very much held that up as you need to be in control of your passions. He was rich. He was privileged. He was a compelling speaker. And he was deeply introspective. And that last one sort of gets at our passage, what's going on today. He was very introspective. He has this line from one of his works and he writes this. He goes, Can anything be more excellent than this practice of thoroughly sifting the whole day? I know what you're thinking. How about a glass of Merlot or something? And how delightful the sleep that follows this self-examination. How how tranquil it is. How deep and untroubled when the soul has either praised or admonished itself. And when the secret examiner and critic of the self has given a report of its own character, I avail myself of this privilege and every day I plead my cause before the bar of self. Seneca was an incredibly introspective day or person. At the end of every day, he would look back over his day and he would sort of like see what went right. Where was he achieving um, the goals he set out for himself as the highest good? Where was he conforming to that image? Where was he not? And that's not too different from our own day. You know the self-help industry is a $10 billion business? $10 billion. The Corinthians Jesus, Paul is saying, is looking more like this wise, learned, controller of his passions, introspective Seneca. And consequently, because they were sort of holding this guy up without even knowing it as the ideal figure, they were starting to um, scrutinize Paul. They were starting to question him. They're starting to question one another. And that's what he says. Remember in the argument, he goes, it is the least concern of mine, whether I am examined by you, whether I'm judged by you, 
or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. That word least is a lakeston, which means last, like literally last. It's the last concern of mine, whether you judge me. And that word for judge, anachroneo, actually is better translated examine or scrutinize. So think of it like a cross-examination in court. For us, when we say judge, we think of, you know, the gavel, like the verdict's been pronounced. That's not what he means here. He's saying, I'm being examined, I'm being scrutinized. And it's the last concern of mine, whether you scrutinize me. I don't even scrutinize myself, which is an interesting statement. The Corinthians are constantly examining and self-examining because that's the sunum bonum. That's the highest good. That's what you do. You examine and self-examine. And Paul is like, I don't have time for this. Now, I'm not aware, he writes, of anything against myself, but that does not mean I'm acquitted. Only God, only the Lord can judge me. Tupac got it right. Only God can judge me. Now, I'm not sure the tone was exactly what Paul was going for, but he's saying, I don't even judge myself. It's kind of like the difference when you think about this normative gaze, when, who you're looking at. It's the difference of looking in a mirror versus looking at another person. When you're looking in the mirror, you're not necessarily looking at yourself, but you're looking at a reflection of yourself. So you're judging where you think you should be based on that reflection. When you're looking at another person, hopefully you're not able to see yourself at all. So you're just taking in the details, the contours, um, the characteristics of this other person. Now, where does this come to bear? Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this interesting uh, passage in his work, The Cost of Discipleship. And he goes, you know, Jesus in, in one of his sermons, uh, he says this very memorable phrase, you've probably heard it. Uh, he goes, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him pick up his cross and let him come die with me. And Bonhoeffer starts asking, what does it mean to deny yourself? Like, what does that mean? Does it mean... When I think of Deny Yourself, I think of the movie Heavyweights. Anyone remember the movie Heavyweights in the 90s? And Ben Stiller's character is like this fitness guru, and he's sitting there with a piece of pizza, and he's got shocks on him, and he's like, you want this pizza, don't you? you want, yes. It's a, little, it's a little weird, I'm just going to be honest. But he's like, you want this pizza. And as he gets closer and closer, right before he takes a bite, he shocks himself. He's like, deny yourself, deny yourself. So we think about, like, that's, what we, that's my idea of deny yourself. It's sort of this asceticism. It's this self-flagellation. But Bonhoeffer writes, that can't be it. Because isn't that just a, a backwards way of affirming yourself, of looking at yourself? <laughs> he goes, to deny yourself can be nothing less than being so consumed with Jesus, you've gone the entire day and realized that you haven't had time to think about yourself. Like, and, and early on in, um, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, um, to the Jewish people, he goes, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you, look with, uh, if you look at your brother with anger in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at someone as if to possess them with desire, you've already done it. And Stanley Hauerwas, similar to Bonhoeffer, goes, how do we get out of this? There's no way. There's no way we can't look at our brother or our sister with anger in our heart he goes, maybe the alternative, similar to Bonhoeffer, is to be so consumed with Jesus, to be offered participation into a community that is so enamored with him that I realize I don't have time to be angry. I don't have time to lust. 
the, main, the major question of what I want to ask <clears throat> is, are you looking at Jesus or are you looking at yourself? And even just, I mean, that might seem, well, duh, I'm trying to look at Jesus. Are you looking at Jesus or are you looking at the imagined self that you think you should look like because you've been transformed by Jesus? Right? I don't know, maybe it's just me where I'll go through a day and um, I'll realize that, I don't know, I made a mistake. I stumble somewhere. I don't conform to the ideal of Jesus. And then I'll start getting disappointed in myself. I'll beat myself up. Anyone else do that? Maybe it's just me. Anyone beat yourself up? Why? Because if I was looking at Jesus, I wouldn't be beating myself up. If I was looking at Jesus, I would see eyes of love. I would see a hand outstretched. I would see someone say, this is why I came. Get up. Let's keep going. I don't condemn you. Does anyone? No one condemns you. Come with me. Am I looking at him? That's what I'd see. If I'm looking at an imagined reflection of what I think I should look like if I were in relationship with Jesus, well, then I realize I'm not, I'm not living up to the standard and I beat myself up. It's easier, says Paul, to look at yourself. It's easier for the Corinthians' savior, their, their normative gaze, their ideal figure, to look like Seneca because they see Seneca everywhere. Seneca makes sense to them. Did anyone ever do cotillion as a kid? Was it just me? Oh my gosh, mom, I am angry right now. <laughs> my mom made me do cotillion. So cotillion was this thing where like as middle schoolers, they sent you to learn how to like be a gentleman, essentially. So we had to go in this room and we had to learn how to talk to women and ask questions. And we, uh, we had to learn to get them Sprite and cookies. I'm not joking. And we had to learn to dance. That's what we did. And my friends from middle school, we'd be like, oh, it's cotillion tonight. We had to put on jackets and, oh, it was the worst. It was the worst. I can't believe y'all weren't subjected. Now I'm angry. Now I'm angry. I'm looking at you with anger in my heart. Um, but anyone ever dance and not know how to dance, right? Maybe that's just me too. <laughs> what is our temptation when we're learning to dance? Look at our feet, isn't it? We look at our feet. Are we getting the steps right? Instead of gazing at our partner, and this metaphor is probably a little shallow, but imagine that we're dancing with the best dancer that the world has ever known. And he's like, I'll take lead on this. You're good. Just look at me. Follow me. Stop thinking about your steps. Stop, stop trying to memorize them or figure out it should be this and then this and then this. No, just drop that. Just let yourself go. Let me lead. And then the dancing, I assume, gets really good. That's the guy I was always taught I had to lead. And I was like, well, joke's on you because I don't know how to dance. <laughs> but who are you looking at? Paul's trying to tell the Corinthians that the Jesus who they're lifting up, who they think they're looking at, actually might be a mirror that's reflecting uh, a more stoic Greek type look instead of the crucified Jesus that he's been talking about. I'm not even concerned, says Paul, whether my life has been changed or not. I'm not even concerned. I don't sense anything in my conscience. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. God can judge. I don't have time to beat myself up. I've got to preach the gospel. 
I don't have time to wonder if I'm getting better or worse. My friends need to be loved. That's all I got. I don't have time worrying what's going on. I've got work to do. Are you looking at Jesus alone? Are you looking at what you think you would look like if Jesus had transformed you? The business of praise and blame belongs to God. The business of praise and blame, even of yourself, belongs to God. So he goes on and he says, I've applied all this to Apollos and myself. Gordon Fee writes, the argument has reached the moment of truth. Paul drops the metaphors and begins to speak plainly. When he writes all this in the Greek, it means ta penta, all these things. So basically the entire first part of the letter. He goes, when I've written all this first part of the letter, the first three chapters for this moment about Apollos and myself. And here's where it gets a little interesting. So that Greek word he uses for applied is metaskizmatsatai or something like that. Yeah, I know. It's a technical term. It's a technical term used in the art of rhetoric. When a communicator uses covert allusions through figurative language to disguise his or her meaning. So when Paul says, I have metaskizmatsatide, I have used this figurative language about Apollos and myself. He's saying that this entire first four chapters where I've been talking about your boasting in me and Apollos, it was never about Apollos and myself. We were the metaphors. We were the figures that I was using to really get at what's really going on, which is your issues. He's been subverting them the whole time. Guys, you just got inceptioned is basically what happened. You think you're awake. Nope, you're dreaming. Paul's like, I'm in your dreams. Let me help you out here. That is what has been going on. It had nothing to do with their boasting in Paul and Apollos. It had everything to do in how they were internally boasting in themselves, one against another. It's kind of like, remember in the, in the schoolyard where you start you know, fighting with one another, like, my mom's cooler than your mom. Nuh-uh, my mom's cooler than your mom. And you start talking, well, my mom does this, my mom does that. What are you really fighting about? You're not really arguing about whose mom is cooler. Who are you arguing about who's cooler? Yourself. That's what's going on. Your moms are the rock'em, sock'em robots that you're hiding behind. It has nothing to do with your moms. That's what's going on with Paul and Apollos. Uh, Paul is saying, I've used us, Paul and Apollos, as the figures, but it was never about us. It was about how you're boasting in us and internally the way that's affecting you. That really, when you boast in me or boast in someone else, what you're really boasting about is yourself. And I did this, says Paul, I applied all this to Apollos and myself so that you may not be puffed up one against another. It's a great word, and it's a great idea to describe what pride is actually doing. Pride puffs us up. Fusio is the word. Think a balloon. Puffed up. The problem at Corinth, says Richard Hayes, is internal rivalry within the community, fostered by prideful claims about the possession of wisdom and rhetorical skill. Perhaps under the pretext of which apostle they follow. So they're boasting in their apostles about Paul and Apollos and their leaders saying, well, he speaks better than your leader. No, my leader speaks better. And really what they're boasting about is, I'm better than you. That's what's going on. That's 
puffing them up. And the question that just applies to us is how are we puffed up against one another? Because we are. It's so, so subtle, but it's so insidious. How am I puffed up against you? Maybe I have a thought. Maybe it's for a split second. And you know what my thought is? Whew. Man, your life is messier than mine. Right? Which is just my way of saying like, sorry, I'm a little more puffed up. Or maybe I recognize that some of you has a gift that someone else doesn't have, has a skill that they're able to bring to community that someone else doesn't have. And if you're not careful, you'll begin to think that that skill is actually like unique to you, that that puffs you up, that you have more value than that other person. The balloon just gets bigger. And Paul asks to that. He goes, I use this so that you wouldn't be puffed up against one another. And Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? He just goes around with the pen and just starts popping balloons. What do you have? You, you think your, your life is cleaner than their life? And that's because of something you've done? I mean, isn't that really like, I mean, if we're being honest sometimes, isn't that kind of how we view the poor? We walk by and we have to fight the, the temptation to think, ooh, what decisions have they made in their life, right? And maybe we don't say it in that tone, but that's definitely there of like, <laughs> puffed up. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Paul's getting at the idea of privilege here. And he goes, it's not the issue. The issue is not privilege. The issue is what you think about the privilege. I heard someone say once, um, the, the, the issue with, with those who don't recognize their privilege is that they were born on third base and think they hit a triple, right? And that's kind of the idea. You're born on third base. You're on third base right now. Awesome, be on third base. But you didn't hit the triple. Yes, you worked extremely hard. But what do you have that you didn't receive? Paul, in the gospel at least, and those of us in Christ, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have is gift, is the providence of God. But for God, so go I. You know that phrase? But for God, so go I. And he's just trying to pop these balloons because what's happening is that the Corinthians are not, even though they think they might be, they're not trying to be like Jesus. They're using Jesus. They're using Jesus as this new spiritual way to be viewed as the wise ones in their wider Corinthian society. They're not trying to be like him. They're using him to play the game in their city and conforming to the gaze of the Seneca philosophers. And Paul knows this. He can see it so clearly because they're puffed up one against another, because of their boasting, they're divided. Because if you were really formed by Christ and in Christ, you couldn't boast against anyone. <laughs> Boasting about yourself would be impossible because you'd recognize it's all gift. And what he's really trying to get at, and I, I don't know, I think like maybe Marshall McLuhan said this or something, but the medium is the message is what he's saying. The medium is the message. We know what we value 
by what form our life takes. We know who we're gazing at and aspiring toward by the decisions we make or don't make. And so Paul's asking, are you looking at Jesus? Are you looking at the Jewish, crucified, poor, abandoned Jesus and saying, because if we call ourselves followers of him, we're saying that that is the highest good. That's the sunum bonum. Even if I don't understand it, this is who I aspire to be. Are you looking at the Jewish, politically powerless, crucified, disfigured, and disdained, and rejected? Poor, put no security in wealth. Abandoned, chose obedience over popular opinion. That's what he valued. And Jesus said, in this, this is the best form of life. This right here, and I come to give you this form of life. Are you looking at him? Or are we using Christianity to conform to the ideal of our city? Because, I mean, we, can, we already know. I can just ask, like, what is, what is the, the ideal type? What is the ideal figure, the sunum bonum of New York City? And we know it, right? Successful. Being a success. Definitely not being a failure. That's the highest good. Being rich, materially or spiritually. Being rich, being self-sufficient, relying on no one for anything. That's the highest good. Being self-confident, believing in yourself. Being hedonistic. And not in like a pejorative sense, but just no one can tell me no. I, you know, like I don't tell myself no. I explore, I experience everything. Upwardly mobile. All these things sort of conspire together, twist together to create the normative gaze that New York City looks at and says, that's the, that's the highest good. And Paul would say, who does our Jesus look like? We know who we're looking at. We know who we're revolving around by the form our lives take. And then Paul, whereas before he would have held up the cross and said, look at this. He doesn't this time. Remember, he drops the metaphors. Instead, he holds up the apostle. He holds up himself. And he starts contrasting them. He goes, you're wise by society standards. We're deemed fools by society. You're, you're strong. Society looks at you and goes, look how strong those Christians are. We're called weak. You're honored. We're dishonored. You're filled. We're hungry thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. Homeless. When cursed, we bless. When persecuted, we accept it. When slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. And yet, you can substitute a certain four-letter word in our own lexicon. And that's what Paul's saying. We've become the garbage of the world. And worst of all, and this, you might not have caught this, he says in verse 9, worst of all, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as though sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. It's not a metaphor. That has a historical referent. It's called the Roman triumph. When the Romans would conquer and battle other people groups, they would take the conquered generals and they would string them up and they would parade them down public roads back into the city to await execution. Paul saying, that's what's accompanying us apostles. That type of treatment. We 
it feels like we're being paraded down cities and executed. And worst of all, it's not Rome that's doing it to us. Who's doing it, did he say? God. God has exhibited us in this way. The same God who offered his son to the world, who allowed his son to die for the sake of love. Which reminds me of a, a line from St. Teresa of Lisieux, who was a 12th century, I think 12th century French mystic, who recognizing this, of really trying to conform her gaze and her values to Jesus, says, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few, <laughs> right? It's too hard, it's too much. Paul had a successful life before he met Jesus. The only thing was you couldn't really call it a life. He was dead. After he met Jesus, it doesn't look like a success anymore, but the difference is he's really alive. So what does that look like? Now I realize as I'm saying that you're probably getting a little nervous, right? Does that mean we have to be like Paul? Sell it all? I don't think that's right. I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. But what does this authentic Christian life look like? Well, perhaps to be conformed to this guy, Jesus, the Jewish crucified, poor, abandoned Jesus. Perhaps it's to choose joy in a world that only sees what's broken. Perhaps that's, that's pretty countercultural. Perhaps it's to be others focused and a society that says, put yourself first. Because Jesus was others focused. Perhaps it's to be sacrificial and a society that says, don't sacrifice, gain more, gain more. Perhaps it's to be one who gives more and gives more. That would make sense. That would be conforming to the image of Jesus. Perhaps what do we idolize above all else is power. Perhaps power doesn't have a hold on us like it has on the rest of our society. Perhaps we don't need power because the Jesus that we conform to is the one who became powerless and powerless. What are these decisions that I love this phrase, it comes from a Wendell Berry poem, that do not compute to our society. Our society has algorithms, it has equations that make sense. And if we're actually making Jesus, if we're looking at him and not a mirror or looking at you know, our society's normative gaze, if we're actually looking at him, we are gonna make decisions that don't compute, that don't make sense. So maybe Jesus is not saying for you to quit your for-profit job and go work in the non-for-profit world, which many of you are like, praise him, thank you. But maybe he is saying, don't take that promotion. Maybe. And of course, you hear that and you're like, well, why wouldn't I take a promotion? Well, because we follow a guy and we say, this is the highest good. Someone who was God and voluntarily demoted himself. Now, he may say take a promotion, but he also may say don't. Do you see? That's the difference. We don't need it like we used to. We have him. Maybe he's not saying don't make money. Maybe some of y'all have been very gifted and equipped and able to make money. But maybe what he is saying is 
I don't know, give your entire tax refund away to an organization. Maybe. Maybe he's saying, I want you to partner 10% of your income to the local church you're a part of. Christians have practiced that throughout the ages. As Nathan said earlier, the reason why we do that is because the Jesus that we hold up as the sunum bonum, the highest good, is one who is voluntarily poor. He goes, true security does not come from wealth. You can have it or you cannot have it. It's neutral. But it doesn't come from it. So be prepared if he asks you to do some really radically generous things. Maybe he's not saying leave it all and become a missionary. Maybe he's not saying that. But he might be saying in a city where we show up and we get what's ours and we leave, maybe he's saying, I want you to stay here. I want you to put down roots here. I want you to serve this community. I want you to serve your neighborhood. Maybe that's what he's saying. And that would, again, be at odds with the Western narrative. All don't look like the apostles. All of us who call Jesus our Lord, we do look at the crucified Jewish Jesus. Does that make sense? We're not all called to look like the apostles, but if we call Jesus Lord, we are all called to look at the Jewish crucified disfigured Jesus and start learning how is this the mystery of God? How is this, this figure, the secret that unlocks the salvation of all the world? Because that's what we're saying he is, and he is. So what are these decisions that don't compute? Maybe we love our enemies in a world that says don't love your enemies. Maybe we, we have a different sexual ethic in a world that says sex is casual. Maybe we work for nothing. Maybe we don't judge ourselves in a world that is constantly saying, figure out your best self yet. Maybe we say, I don't have time for that. I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at you. Maybe we practice Sabbath. <laughs> we take a day and we do no work physically or mentally as a way of saying the world doesn't spin based on what I do for it. God has it. All of these, all of these are decisions that do not compute to a New York City mindset. And I, I don't know if we're being called to all of them, but we're probably being called to some of them. So what is that for us? And of course, you're probably sitting here thinking, well, can you give us a couple steps? Yes, yes, I can. I wanna invite us as a community into something together, two certain practices that don't compute to the wider society, which demonstrate that we are conforming to the sunum bonum, the highest good of Jesus, that we're looking at him. And these practices, maybe you've done them before, are prayer and fasting. 21 days of prayer and fasting. We talked about this briefly last week. Um, just as a way to say, be prepared, because we're gonna talk about it today. Prayer is already a, uh, an action that seems very inefficient and very ineffective to a very productive society, does it not? And in fasting, in foregoing something, so for those of you who don't know what fasting is, uh, traditionally it's been meant with food. You, you forego a meal or you forego food for a certain period of time. And in the hunger, when it strikes, you turn um, your heart, your mind to, to the Lord as a way to say, as Jesus said, we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. 
And I've been feeling in my own spirit a call to this, a call to enter into a season as an individual, as a Christian, and as a community for any who feel so called, where we can collectively make decisions that don't compute. For 21 days, 21 days from now, I don't know if you know it, will be Easter. So for 21 days, I wanna invite us as a community to pray and to fast, to make decisions that don't compute so as to turn our faces toward Jesus, to lead us up to Easter where we celebrate his resurrection and to party month where it's a month of celebration because that's also a decision that doesn't compute where Christians celebrate so wildly and joyously. That's something that doesn't make sense. And so if if you're interested in what this looks like, there are a couple types of fast that I wanna put up. I think I have a a slide for it. Um, Next slide, yeah, right there. A couple types of fast. And based on your history with fasting, I wanna invite you into them. So one is a complete fast. I do not wanna invite you to that if you have no experience with fasting. If you've practiced it before, if you've grown up, in a a culture where you have practiced fasting for extended periods, maybe that's one for you. But if you don't have any experience, don't do that one. But a partial fast, maybe you you forego a certain meal in the day. Uh, Maybe you forego a certain food or certain substance. Or a soul fast. Maybe you forego something. The idea of fasting is you're giving up something that you you feel a certain tickle inside, like how am I gonna go 21 days without this? It's got to hurt a little bit. It's got to be sacrificial. And so maybe it's social media. For many of us, it probably is. Maybe it's television. Maybe I, I was talking with someone and she was saying that she's giving up complaining right now. That's super cool. Maybe if you find yourself struggling, like you, the first thing that comes out of your mouth is complaints, maybe give that up. And in its stead, because that's the other thing, we don't just give it up and like, well, what do I do? You give it up and fill it with something else. In its stead, We fill it with psalms. We fill it with prayers. And so what's going to happen, so I'll leave this for you to figure out what exactly might God be asking you? uh, What particular fast would he be asking you to join into for the next 21 days? And how it's going to work in the next slide. um, Oh, and and we're going to enter into prayer as as well for the next 21 days. So while we're fasting, we're going to be praying. And what I want you to be praying for is this church. We're coming up on one year old, which is crazy. Who has God made us to be? Who is God making us to be? What is he calling us into? Be praying for party month. Be praying for this month of celebration. Um, As Esther said earlier, it'd be a great month for like your friend who's like, why are you a Christian? It doesn't make sense. Be like, all right, cool. We're going to have a month of celebrations at my church. Just come roll with me for one month. And then You can go your own way, but at least you'll know why I'm a Christian. Be praying for that. Be praying for the Holy Spirit to be tangibly present in your life, in the church's community. Be praying for our friends. And then specifically, be praying for Jesus to reveal to you where you're actually not gazing at him. Maybe there's a part of your life where you're looking more at what makes sense to wider society and less at him and what he's asking of you. And as we enter to this prayer and fasting. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how we're going to do it as a community. We created the Google group, created the Google group. And if you're on the mail list, you've already been added into it. If you're new in here for the first time and you want to join in, fill out that connection card and drop it off at the what's next table. We'll get you involved. 
And every day, we're gonna send out an email, an email that has a, a short scripture and a short prayer for you to start your day with. And then this is gonna be a, a group where we can interact with one another. So if you want to respond with encouragement to the group, you can reply. Um, if you just wanna respond um, to one person in the group, to a certain reply, you can do that too. Esther will explain it all. But it's gonna be a way to keep us encouraged. If you're part of a table, maybe your table can go through this together. Um, we're also gonna have an Instagram post every day with the same scripture and prayer. Just ways that we can encourage one another because the idea behind prayer and fasting is to enter into a practice that doesn't make sense. That's hard. And when we give it up to turn our faces to Jesus and say, fill us. What do you have for us? So we'll have the Google group. We'll have an Instagram post. And the last thing we're gonna do is we're gonna have three Thursdays. These next three Thursdays leading up to Easter, we're gonna do prayer and worship nights. So maybe you've been to one before. If you haven't, they're incredible. They're so much, they're, they're really filling. Um, and we're gonna do it at Recovery House of Worship, the same place we're doing the baptism. It's only about four blocks or four avenues east toward the Barclays Center. Um, we're gonna meet there at 7 p.m. every Thursday. So this upcoming Thursday, the 15th, uh, the 22nd and the 29th, from 7 to 8.15, and we're just gonna to gather together and sing and pray for one another. We're gonna turn our faces toward Jesus. We're gonna sort of say, Lord, we're starving for you. We need you to reveal yourself. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, what's this all about? I wanna encourage you to do it as well. I wanna encourage you to say, all right, Jesus, I'll give you a shot. I'll give you 21 days. What do you wanna, if you're real, what do you wanna say to me? And as a community, this will prepare us for Easter and for a month of celebration. Hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, we're gonna send out an email today with all that information. And so at this time, I wanna invite the, uh, the worship team back up. And will you join me in, uh, in prayer together? Lord, we, uh, protect us against comfort. We're so grateful for the gifts you've given us, for roofs over our heads, for friends, for jobs, for bank accounts, for family. Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. What do we have that's not a gift from you? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And you haven't given it to us with conditions. You haven't given us these gifts saying, do something with them or I'm gonna be disappointed in you. No, you're just a good father who loves to give good gifts. That's the essence of love. It overflows, it gives, it gives. But it's so easy, Lord, and I confess I am so quick to do it. I get so comfortable that I forget to look at you. I forget we're in a relationship, a living relationship where you, you call me deeper into your heart. You're telling me to stop looking at my feet and just dance 
with you. And Lord, a practice that you've given your your church for the last 2,000 years is prayer and fasting. A set time where the entire community can come together with open hands and confess that we haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved one another with our whole hearts. We've been prideful, we've been puffed up, and we're sorry. Please forgive us, Lord. For each person in this room, I don't know if they call you their Lord or if they don't, but Jesus, will you just speak to their hearts right now and reveal to them a step, what you want them to fast from this next 21 days. Give them courage and desire to say, I wanna join into this. I wanna be a part of this because I don't want to be comfortable. I want you, Lord. I wanna hear your voice, as terrifying as that may be. So reveal to them what step you want them to take. And if there's anyone in this room, Jesus, who, who doesn't know you, who doesn't trust you, would you reveal to them too and give them courage to say, okay, we'll give you a shot. And would you show yourself? Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for this community. It's yours, Jesus. It's always been centered on you and it always will be. Reveal to us the places where it's not and help us to gaze at you. We love you and we praise you and it's in your name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.